You are listening to Checkbox Outreach, a podcast that showcases excellence and raises awareness of current issues from those who are directly impacted, but typically not at the table. Now, here are your hosts, Aaliyah Gaskins and Katie Leonard. Hi, welcome to Checkbox Outreach. This is Katie. And this is Aaliyah. Welcome back for another exciting episode. Today, we are joined by John Cano. And John is a community organizer with CASA of Northern Virginia. So welcome to the show, John. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here, especially under these uh, circumstances that we're facing as human beings here in the United States with COVID and then the recent murder of our uh, brother in Minneapolis and the outbreaks and the lack of leadership that uh, we've been seeing by um, politicians across the United States. For sure. So... I am super excited to have this conversation. And when I very first started with Checkbox Outreach, you were one of the first people that I wanted to reach out to just because it's important to have so many different voices when we talk about equity and racial equity. And we were on the former chairman of the board for Fairfax County did a racial equity stakeholder group. And you were a member, probably more active than I was. So don't tell anybody. <laughs> but um, you, the very, the very first <laughs> meeting, you talked about what you were doing and the population you were serving. And so first and foremost, can you just shed light on the work that you were doing before the populations that have needs that we typically aren't even talking about? Absolutely. So in, in uh, Fairfax County is a majority minority uh, county with folks from all different uh, backgrounds from across the world. One of the second most common language that is spoken is Spanish. A lot of folks migrate from uh, Latino America. Um, and specifically the community that I was working with at that time are from uh, Central America, specifically from Guatemala. Uh, but what their first language isn't Spanish. And this is something that is always not taken in consideration uh, their first language is a Mayan language. So Guatemala has over 23 Mayan languages, and particularly the community in Centerville, they're from uh, the region in Neva. And the thing that with folks who come from Guatemala and have a identify as indigenous, their first language is a language that they learn, and they might not even learn Spanish until they arrive here in the States. And that's crazy and this, Like. I didn't even know that. Like, my mind was blown when you first said that. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's crazy. I didn't even know about that until I started working with the community. And I I learned a lot from my brothers and sisters in Centerville, uh, to Jeronimo, to Pedro. I uh, want to give a shout-out to them, to the International Mind League that have been leading the space here in the United States of America to let know about the indigenous rights. And that's what they've been fighting alongside folks in Centerville. We often say words matter, but I think what you raise is language matters and the way in which we communicate those words, especially you know, right now being in the midst of a pandemic where misinformation can travel so quickly. I'm curious if you could just talk a little bit about some of the experiences you've had and the power and the importance of translating information, partnering with community organizers like you to make sure that communities can receive information and receive facts in the way that is unique and sensitive to their culture. Absolutely. You hit it to the teeth. Language and words matter. Sometimes we, whether we realize it or not, 
if we misidentify someone who is indigenous, we are erasing their identity. Uh, if they speak a Mayan language and we just assume that they're Latino, we are erasing their identity as individuals. So it is important. Words do matter. It's, and these uh, folks and individuals who come from all these different cultures, they face so many uh, inequities, it, starting from their home country. Give, give them a little background and context to uh, Guatemala. They were in an armed conflict for over 36 years where uh, General Rios Montt did an ethnic cleansing. And that's what caused several indigenous individuals to migrate, specifically in the region of Neva, uh, where all the members there are speak a shield. Uh, they were displaced, and on their journey, they had to learn to hide their identity, not because they wanted to, but they needed to survive. And now coming here to the States, they're open to prejudice, racism, again, but under a different sector, and that's being a Latino or Latin for some individuals. So, and once they come here, not only are they facing those types of racism, but they're also facing a language barrier. So what, uh, are, some of, what are some of the, I guess, the biases that the groups that you work to empower, like what do they face? What are some of the stereotypes around that group of people that we might not be familiar with? Yeah, so there's I mean, a, it might a be a whole separate podcast episode, but so. yeah, that is, there's a lot of stereotypes, especially uh, even within the Latino culture, my culture, um, folks that are from Latin America that identify as indigenous have extreme prejudice for those who are indigenous. Uh, they consider them to be illiterate, not well-educated, don't belong in society, treat them as savages. And those are, you know, just the stereotypes that they face in their home country. And once they arrive here, I mean, it's even more prejudices of one being mislabeled as not only Latino, but uh, individual as a Mexican, if they're not Mexican, being gang members, folks that commit crime, no-gooders, just here to disrupt and make more problems here in our in our nation. Katie and I have been talking a lot lately about the fact that it's too often too easy for folks to just assume that, you know, all Latino people are the same. All Black people are the same. Each of us comes with the same experience because we have a similar um, skin tone or maybe we come from a similar geographic region. And I think you know, I'm just sitting here very struck by what you said about how those labels, how those assumptions erase people's identity, erase their story, and can lead to really real, like, trauma and pain. I mean, the names you talked about are disgusting and horrible that anyone is being labeled and called that. And just thinking about how that impacts their mental health, the job opportunities they're able to receive, the access to healthcare, other resources, and all the things that I think many of us would deem as essential to community. I want to go back for a little bit and just kind of get to know a little bit more about your story and how you became so passionate about these issues, how you even got connected with the Mayan community in Fairfax County in the first place. Yeah, so it's actually, it took place with current individual that's at the White House. Once he won the election, I was doing political work at that time. And when he won... I didn't, I woke up that he won and I didn't believe it. Um, and I thought to myself, I was like, political work is important, yes, but my community, immigrant community, I need to do more for them. I, I can't be focusing, getting elected officials 
into office when I can do direct services and work alongside my brothers and sisters. And I quickly dug out my laptop, did some research. I was living in the middle of nowhere, Southwest Virginia. So I decided to apply for jobs in Northern Virginia. And I actually came across the nonprofit Centerville Immigration Forum. And, you know, at that time uh, on their website, they worked with the immigrant community. And I grew up in Northern Virginia and I loved the mission statement that they had. And, and I went there, I got the job. And, I wouldn't even say it was a job, honestly. The friendships that I made and the power building that we made played a key role. I was being educated on everything that the Mayan culture has endured. Their uh, individuals have been facing oppression for, God, for over 400 years, going back to the Mayan civilization. And the sharing their culture and working with them and being an ally for them was key. As I mentioned, they do face inequalities, but they're always fighting, always fighting for their rights, empowering each other. Uh, to be there with them as an ally was just amazing. And this president that we have now is what got me going. I mean, I always had that fire in me, but it's the push. It gave me the right push that I needed. If you could um, quickly just school our listeners on some of the terms you just mentioned, what does it mean or how would you define, like, what is power building and what does it look like to be an ally, an authentic ally to communities? Yeah, so I want to talk about being an ally. I think that's sometimes that folks misunderstand, uh, especially now with what we're facing with, you know, the murder of all our Black brothers and sisters that have been taking place across the United States, we see folks uh, who are not Black want to do something, and they're like, I will go speak out. I will go. I'll stand there with you. I'll be there with you in solidarity. And sometimes what they don't understand is that we applaud the work that they're doing, but they need to know when to step in and step aside. So this movement, Black Lives Matters, or any movement that uh, people of color are facing, folks who are white need to understand that they are important, but they need to know when to just be there for support and not lead and listen. I can't say it any clearer, to be there and listen, uh, because we don't need a white savior. We don't need anyone to be there for our community. They need to be with us in solidarity and listen. The listening has and been the key theme in a lot of our discussions lately. And also in saying, you know, you have a seat at the table. How do you bring other people with you? And listening helps you do that, to actually hear people's barriers and hear what they're going through to meet them and meet their needs. But again, not saving them. Nobody wants a handout or to be saved. We want equitable access to the tables where the decisions are being made. Absolutely. And so just listening and being an ally, that's that's key for those that want to be in support of any cause that is not theirs to lead. And then going to power building, that's identifying structures and barriers that does not allow a group of individuals to succeed and have equity. And that can be from the government, it can be businesses, it can be the jail, highlighting what is keeping your community down. And then from there, see 
who are who is funding and supporting these resources of oppression and start working and advocating based around them and identifying allies that can achieve uh, to overturn these uh, structures of power that have been built for generations. That's something we haven't talked about is following the money and guiding people to follow the money. And I'm really glad that you said that because we're in this space right now where people are talking and they're doing town halls and things aren't being said that haven't been said for years and years. And so I'm really glad you just you just schooled me on that because the money and the capital is where the change happens. And if we follow those streams and those avenues, I think that's where the change, the real change has to be and where we'll see the biggest impact. Absolutely. And I think what we're seeing now, I mean, it's it's key for folks to follow where the money goes. Uh, with corporations like Amazon and all these big corporations coming out with statements right now. That's no, we don't need that. If you follow what they're doing to oppress our communities, a statement like that is nothing. If they really want to stand in solidarity, they need to stop funding organizations like the police department that are keeping us down, our communities down. So definitely following the money and understanding that some of these companies and organizations that are making statements right now is just for show. Yeah. And we need to understand and educate ourselves. I'd love your take. So in our business incubator, we had a general contracting company. And so I got more looped in with the trades here in Northern Virginia. I went to a meeting. I'm not going to out the organization, but I pulled up and it's a lot of pickup trucks, more out in more rural Virginia. And I saw Trump signs, Trump bumper stickers on these pickup trucks. But when I got inside, they were talking about lobbying to keep workers visas because if people's visas expired through the Trump administration, then their their businesses would fold. And so how do you leverage or how do you work with groups that they have a business interest to hire people from immigrant communities, but on the other side, a lot of their policies are detrimental to immigrant groups at the same time. So it's a self-interest thing for them. Can you leverage that? Is it possible? Like, how do you approach that scenario? Yeah, and that's where, and that's a very good question. That's where lobbying comes into play, uh, knowing what interests that you have in common and start working from there and educating them on the bigger scheme of what immigration is, particularly to your question, if they want to support folks who have visas or TPS or DACA, build from there. Um, Get them to understand that we're not just laborers. We're not here for work. We have families. Uh, We have a story. Why do we migrate? Let's look why we have these special visas or special work permissions. Let's do you understand why this has taken place, why certain countries have been uh, designated uh, with these special uh, assignations such as TPS and DACA, and then take it from there and educating them with role this country has had for individuals to migrate to this country. And that's something that I want to be clear is that this country has played a huge role in Latin America and several other countries around the globe and have caused a mass exodus of of my community to come here. It's not because they're saviors. It's because of their of global politics of neocolonization. There's this old like adage or slogan that's like, you have to ask the five whys. 
And I feel like it is until you ask that why over and over and over, you don't get at that history. You don't get at sort of what is the route that has led us to, like you said, where there are multiple different visas, where there are 15 different programs to serve one population. And I think that's the piece that people stop at. Um, so I don't know. I, I guess for me, I don't know very much about that history and I'd be curious, but I also know Katie wants to jump in with a question as oh, well. Oh no, so I, I just want wanted to, to, he said neocolonization. I just want to define that. Like, oh, what do you... I want to say imperialism uh, with the United States trying to impose themselves in several different countries because they believe they think they know what's best for that country. And I can speak specifically to El Salvador. That's where my parents are from. The United States played a key factor in funding the uh, Salvadorian government that caused massacres of thousands of Salvadorians simply because they were against leftist policy. They were afraid of the spread of socialism and communism. And because of that, the um, Reagan administration supported and funding the Salvadorian government. And like I mentioned, they killed thousands of Salvadorians and Nicaragua as well. They also funded folks who oppose leftist ideology. I know very little about history in Latin America. So I appreciate you elaborating and sharing more about your parents' story, but also the story of El Salvador and just it challenges me. I want to go learn more. I, um, John Leguizamo's Netflix special, how do you, like, I learned, and I don't even know, again, we don't teach Latin history, really, and I took, like, one Latin American civilization sociology class in undergrad, I think, and I barely paid attention, right? But just what he was saying in his, I mean, it's art, right? It's a, a sketch and a historical I don't even know what they called it. But like, there's just so much of like what you talked about, theft of culture and theft of wealth and what how that plays out into black and brown communities now, particularly in Latin communities and the colorism conversation of what they talk about and what he talks about in Latin communities. What is your, did you like, what is your take on that? Because I, I hate when people come to me like they watched one documentary or one movie about black people and they're like, what did you think about that? So I'm, I'm being that person, but we have you here. I want to get your take on that show. On that particular or show. Or any show. Like, what do you recommend? Where can we school ourselves? I'm like, I want to ask you all the questions. Yeah, so I think that uh, stand-up comedy that he had special, I think it was a great step to educate folks of what actually took place in Latin America. Uh, on top of that, I um, also would recommend Open Veins Latin America, and that goes into detail about everything that has taken place in Latin America in several different countries. That book is actually on my to-do list. I haven't read it yet, but I have seen several reviews on it, yeah. and it's been on to-do list uh, to read, and also... For individuals in particular, I think for me, uh, Monsignor Romero, who was a bishop during the Civil War in El Salvador, um, he was a key activist in denouncing what the government was doing at that time. And he was actually killed for speaking out against the injustices that the government was doing to its own people. Uh, so looking into Monsignor Romero, Archbishop Romero, um, his story. It's very powerful. I love it. I want to ask you, I like have so much happening up here. What, in terms of the, the current state we find ourselves in, and there's this political, like, 
how do I say this? Like making everything, people feel like it's political, right? Or that people are quick to say, you make everything about race, but everything is about race. How do you enter the conversations to advocate for the issues that impact the communities that you work with? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, there's no way to sugarcoat the inequities that our communities face. I mean, just about a week ago or two, backtrack two months ago, COVID-19, the federal government announced that this was an actual virus. Um, and when the virus did take place, or did it hit the most? It was in black and brown communities. And what did the federal, the state, and the local government do? Absolutely nothing. Particularly here in Northern Virginia, when we look at Fairfax County and Prince William County, uh, the Latino community only makes about 30%, uh, but they uh, have over 60% of the COVID-19 uh, infection rate. And what does this say that our county governments, our all governments have failed us? And when we do advocate and meet with our elected officials, there's no sugarcoating. We need to let them know that they have failed. They have failed families. They have failed in leaving children behind with no parent or guardian to take care of. They have failed in providing assistance. Well, now we're, fa we're seeing community members being possibly evicted once this is all is over. So when it comes to lobbying and making these asks, there isn't no sugarcoating. Yes, they have done some justice for the overall community, but where we need it the most, they have not acted. I want to dive into these issues you're advocating for a bit more, because before we started the show, I know Katie and I asked you to do a small survey and tell us a little bit about what was on your mind. And one of the things you raised were the challenges with utility payments during coronavirus pandemic. What could our local governments, state, or even the federal response be doing better to assist people in being able to keep, especially their water, on. I mean, for a virus where the greatest prevention is washing your hands, like what should we be doing around utility protection? Yeah, so I think the governor, Northam, made a good decision on instructing utility companies not to shut off water, electricity, or gas for those individuals who cannot pay it during this pandemic. But I think he failed in making the extra milestone and canceling any payment that they may accumulate once this is all said and done. Um, because that's great. No one has to worry about paying right now. But what happens after we overcome this virus? People can be hit with that bill from the past four months accumulated. And if they don't have a job, they've been unemployed and they don't qualify for unemployment, or did they not qualify for the CARES Act, what is going to happen? We're going to continue this cycle of letting our communities be even more impoverished. Yeah. So yeah. I think advocating our elected officials at the county level, at the state level, to push our governor and the General Assembly to cancel um, and pardon all utility payments and rental payments. Uh, because yeah. if not, we're going to see another pandemic of folks being evicted, not being able to uh, provide housing for their loved ones. That was what I was like highlighting early on way back in March. I was saying the supports and the resources 
are not there. We have already had these huge gaps to begin with. And so what's going to happen is we are going to leave people even further behind. So the disparities that we were seeing in March of 2020 are just going to widen because of evictions. Once you get that eviction on your record, good luck ever being able to rent anything from a major rental property ever again. You have to then be at the mercy of the landlords, the one-off groups that might be slumlords. They might not maintain their properties well. And so it's just a cycle of poverty and cycle of lack and cycle of a, a bad environment that puts people at a disadvantage. And then they're even further behind the starting line. And that's exactly what we talk about when we talk about equity and who's at what point in the race. I think you both in your comments raise a good point, that there's the work we need to do in the short term. Like we're in the middle of a crisis. Here's the things we need to do to cancel immediate shutoffs. But then what's this long-term recovery? What's the long-term plan that we are starting to invest in so that when we do emerge from this, as you said, John, we're not in another pandemic or another crisis because we haven't done the planning or put the resources aside to help people when the Band-Aid is ripped off. Um, which kind of brings me to my next question. I'm curious, John, what's next for you? And take that any way that resonates in terms of either what's next personally, what you're advocating for. Um, yeah, I think what's next is, well, I won't just speak for me, but what's next for all of us is to keep an eye out for those elected officials and what they have done during this crisis of COVID-19 and the killings that we've been seeing to our Black brothers and sisters. Have they been silent? Have they done anything? Elections are right around the corner, and there's consequences to elections. And if they are not uh, the allies that they said they were, we need to start looking at other individuals to run. We need to look to our own community, get them to run. Because it's past due that we uh, elect folks that represent and look like us. So for on my end, is working with individuals who are there to actually make change and challenge the status quo. Uh, a lot of our elected officials lack the backbone to make the right decision. And why is that? It goes back to the power mapping. It goes back who is funding their campaigns. If you have individuals that are being funded by Dominion and the big super PACs, they're not going to have the interests of you and me. We need to look at individuals that have the interests of our communities. And then I, so for me, it's more of the political aspect, and, but also making time to volunteer with local nonprofits that are making good in our communities, um, dedicating some time to dropping off some food for those in need, making donations to nonprofits who are making a difference where the government has failed to act. If any of our listeners want to get in touch with you to collaborate with you on this work or even just need ideas for where they could volunteer, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, so the best way, uh, email me at acano at org. Also, I can give out my work cell, 804-762-0478. Perfect. Well, John, this has been amazing. I have a lot of other questions, so maybe as time allows in the future, we can maybe do a, a follow-up to this conversation, maybe post-corona because what you are bringing or what you're shedding light on are things that is not in my wheelhouse and it's not conversations that I'm having every single day. 
and your voice needs to be heard. Your voice needs to be elevated. And I'm glad that Checkbox Outreach can be a, a platform for you to do that. So you're welcome back anytime. Awesome. Thanks for having me. And I look forward to continue to be on this show and spreading the word of uh, the podcast. Awesome. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. It's time for action. Checkbox Outreach is more than a podcast and simply putting a check in a box. This is about impact and moving the needle. Aaliyah and Katie, what are the next steps? All right, Aaliyah, what are your thoughts on Mr. Cano? I'm just, again, blown away because like you mentioned several times in the episode, we don't learn about Latin history and Latin culture and it's really not on the forefront of our conversations when we're talking about equity and racial injustice. Agreed. I would say, first off, I'm not only blown away, but I'm actually, I'm feeling very humbled after this conversation just by how much I don't know and how many other cultures I have not explored. And so there were so many questions I wanted to ask him, but also just so many things I left with with wanting to learn. And for me, the takeaway that stuck with me the most is our discussion around language and words and just how much language and words matter. There was a part in the episode where he said, if we misidentify somebody, we are erasing their identity. And that just stuck with me because if you think about it, we created Checkbox Outreach because we wanted to expand the table. We wanted to create opportunities for more diverse voices to be heard. And I think there's a lot of people who want to do that. But if we're just adding seats to the table and we're not creating spaces for people to bring their full selves, to share their story and to engage in the way that's comfortable for them, then we're part of that same erasure. We're part of then making assumptions and defining somebody else's story for them. That's not something either of us want to do. And I would imagine there's a lot of folks in this work who don't want to do that either. And so how do we move beyond just translating flyers into Spanish or another language to actually pushing and asking the questions to identify and understand other cultures? So I have two things on that. Like one is we talk about diversity and inclusion. And a lot of times they're interchangeable words, which they are very different. And one of the best definitions that I've heard is diversity is who's at the table. Like, congratulations, you have some black people at your table. Good job. People pat themselves on the back for that. Inclusion is how they feel when they're at that table. And I've been, and I'm sure any black or brown person out there can probably tell you, we've been invited to several tables, but we feel like shit when we get to the table or we're talked down upon or we're discredited or our ideas aren't heard or people's bias or stereotypes about what we bring to the table are so different than what we're actually bringing to the table. And so those things are, are so, so important that we need to be addressing that they are very, very different. And to take that a step further, if we're going to add in equity, if we're clear that equity is the goal, then equity is about, I would imagine, what we get to do at that table. And so it's yeah. not just bringing our idea, but is our idea leading to a different course of action and being heard and taken seriously? The other thing was, so I remember when I was doing my MPH, I don't even remember what class it was, but on the final, I want to say we only had like two or three questions on the final. And one of the questions was, what's the problem with us how we categorize the Lucifone population in the United States of America. And so thank God this was an online class and I could Google at least what the Lucifone population was. So according to Wikipedia, it's an ethno-linguistic group of which they're, they speak Portuguese, like they're from Brazil. 
And so the problem is when they come to America, we categorize them as Hispanic and or Latino and we don't have language resources for them. So they get here and they're like, oh, your skin is brown, therefore you must speak Spanish. And John touches on that here and what we see with the indigenous populations in Fairfax County that we say, oh, you look like everybody else, you must speak Spanish. And so therefore these are the resources that are available to you in that language. We're patting ourselves on the back once again, done and done by, and it's a huge problem. The other piece that's so important about when John brings this up is it's not just assuming what language someone speaks, but we also project all of these other stereotypes onto people based on how we've categorized them. And I just want to emphasize, you know, it's not just, oh, let's have this conversation and let's do better in how we introduce ourselves to people and how we meet them. But these have real implications. We're at a moment right now where we're taking the census and we're trying to get a count of people and the way people identify themselves, the resources that are available, all of what we're talking about right now plays into, you know, activities like getting an accurate census, but then also how we allocate resources because of that. Yeah. And I just want to touch on or point to it's okay to be clueless and ask questions and you have to put yourself out there my friend was making fun of me because I told him how I had asked John if John Leguizamo's documentary was any good he's like you did not ask that Katie on the podcast and I was like I really wanted to know because if it was garbage and I'm sitting here thinking it's something that's culturally appropriate then I don't want to keep sharing it and we have to be okay with asking the questions and maybe looking silly or mm-hmm. maybe possibly even offending somebody. But when you do offend the person, be like, I'm really sorry. I didn't know. Now I know. I know never to use that language or I know never to ask that line of questioning in that way again. But you have to be willing to ask and be vulnerable to put yourself out there to get the information. And that speaks to, so the other thing that I took away from this episode is the discussion we had about what it means to be an ally. And something John said around knowing when to step in and knowing when to step aside. You will never know how to engage in an issue, especially in an issue that's not yours to lead, if you don't ask questions. It's one thing to, you know, change your Facebook status, make a post, whatever are those little acts yep. that people think are, you know, meaningful or creating change, that's not actually having an impact. An impact is when you move beyond the post, you move beyond the books you're reading and you engage in conversation with people who don't look like you and people who aren't in your circle and you allow them to tell you what's needed and to tell you the role that you know, is needed for you to play in this, in this movement. It's not going off in a silo and creating what you might think is the solution. It's really having that dialogue and you can't do that without asking questions. And you can't do that if you're not curious. So a really good example of knowing when to step aside was with the share the mic initiative that just took place on social media. And so Lovey Ajayi was really a coordinator of this effort to reach out to white women who had massive followings and basically they were open to giving up their password and their social media accounts and saying here here's a brown or a black woman that is doing really dope work in our country or even globally and they got their platform for the day and it something like that was so so powerful and i'll even give credit to vice mayor elizabeth bennett parker again and putting us in her newsletter that time and saying hey i have a platform that is reaching all of these people, let me bring other people with me. And I just think those are two really good examples of how we can do that and be an ally and raise awareness about issues without stepping in. I like that John mentioned the white savior. 
because that's a huge issue and we see it in movies like we I saw something that said you know don't watch the help and think that that's going to be this black empowerment it's a great movie don't get me wrong my daughter loves mm -hmm. it but there's a white savior in that or green book there's a white savior in that and so you have black and brown people that are more than capable of being great on their own their efforts have been more than enough for them to shine but these movies portray them as still having to have a white person accompany them to that greatness. Exactly. And I will say on the um, point of sharing the mic, I just want to give a shout out. Folks may remember Sheba, who was one of our earlier yeah. guests. Richmond actually did a similar thing. It was called um, Richmond Mic Share. And she had the opportunity to swap platforms with another person in the community and elevate the work that she's doing around reentry and criminal justice reform. And I don't know, for those of our listeners who now follow her on Facebook or Twitter, she talks about just how powerful that was to connect with people who have been in Richmond for the same amount of time as her, but in completely different circles and had no idea about some of these policies that are circulating at the state level or even the impact of what's happening when folks are released from prison and the work that she's trying to do. And so it's just so, so powerful when you can hear the work from people's voice directly mm -hmm. and give them space or give them a mic to say what's on their mind and to say what they need and what they need from you specifically. And I say that, I mean, my complete jam in life is my own personal wealth building and to send the elevator down from the penthouse. I'm like, right now I'm maybe on like in between the first and second floor. Nobody needs the elevator in between the first and second floor. Like I'm trying to go all the way up and bring people with me. And I think that's the same mentality that other people need, especially when we talk about allyship and that I've created this lane, I've created this space. How do I bring people with me? Yep. It's shifting the power, which I know is another. I mean, I'm just like, I know all these so segues. So perfect. I love this episode. I really, really love this episode. So when John is talking about power building and he's talking about following the money and he said, we really need to highlight what's keeping the community down. But where I was like most blown was when he said, who is funding resources of oppression? And when you follow the money, we talked last week with Bernadette on the back end piece about philanthropic giving. And if you follow the money, there's your answer right there. So I'm pausing because I was trying to give credit to a tweet I saw, but I don't remember who said it. So I'm just okay. going to paraphrase the words. <laughs> but basically they said that if we look back years from now and the only thing we've achieved is people doing posts on Facebook or social media, companies making statements and, um, you know, painting Black Lives Matters on the street. If we've only done these things, but we haven't actually changed the laws and policies that lead to inequity or shifted the way money flows to communities, yeah. then we haven't actually solved the problem. We yeah. haven't created a more equitable society. And so this piece about follow the money is so important about who's putting money into communities, what's being done with it, and like how do we flip that table. And where are you spending your money? And granted, I don't want to be called a hypocrite because I've had people be like, we're going to boycott Target. And I'm like, pause. First of all, I love Target. But second of all, our collective impact is not going to put a dent in what Target makes in a day with like me and my friend group, right? We're not, they're not going to blink that Katie Leonard did not go to Target that week. And so I think there are broader actions that can be taken, but 
your money means a lot. And collectively, if you have the entire nation saying we're going to boycott this or we're not spending our money here, we're supporting black owned businesses, you literally vote with your dollar, your hard earned dollar. And that's the main reason a lot of these companies have had these Black Lives Matter statements is because they know their bottom line will be impacted. So I'm at the point where I'm like, let's roll and let's create policy and systems change and let's bring about racial justice. A really good example of this is there's an organization, and I'm not going to out them, that I've had the opportunity to partner with. And they are on their own equity journey. And they've recently released statements around Black Lives Matter and the work that they want to do to create um, a more equitable society. And then they held a virtual convening. And as part of that convening, they gave everybody a $10 gift card to Starbucks. And many people who might have been following the news know that Starbucks was in a lot of hot water because they had said that none of their employees can wear anything that says Black Lives Matter. And so there were a number of folks who were calling to boycott them. And I just thought it was really interesting that sometimes we can make these statements or we can you know, want to push an action or have these conversations, but we're actually disconnected with what some mm -hmm. of these companies are doing and where their money is going, but also what are they saying and what are they putting out there? That's been a theme on other shows of ours. When we look at policies, we talked about the budget for HIV prevention and care and where on one end are you working to address the issue, but then cutting Medicaid money. So we really need to be paying attention comprehensively to a lot of these issues. And the implications or the ask here to the decision makers and the policymakers is that let's be more accountable and transparent with the money that we're receiving and the ask for the general everyday person like me and you pay attention to where you're spending your money. That That's a powerful move. So one more ask for this episode, and this is a complete like rough pivot, but I want to say it before I forget, is John raised the question around you know utility shutoffs and how right now we have a lot of programs in place that are basically to help renters and to help others get through COVID, being able to, you know, put a pause on their utility payments. And he raised the question of, okay, now that we're reopening, now that things are coming back, what happens next? And I think that's true for some of the other policies we've seen around eviction, increases in unemployment insurance. And he gave an example where he talked about, you know, could there be policies that basically cancel the accumulation of all of the sort of back payments? So that way you're not hit with, okay, here's everything I owed yeah. for the past three months. And that's an area I definitely want to do more research on. But I'd be really curious, you know, is that something Virginia is looking at? And if not, what are other states doing and are there lessons we could learn so that we're not creating basically this wave of, okay, now things are back open and now I'm hit with every single bill or everything that was paused for the last three months and now I'm even further behind. And my piggyback on that ask is just to make sure that the outreach and the engagement is actually appropriate for all people of all languages and that you are reaching the people in their native language that they speak. And I understand that's a budget issue, that might be a resource issue, but we really need to do a better job and not just have checkbox outreach to where we're checking a box. Hey, black people, brown people, check. We, we sent them some letters and here it was in a language that they couldn't even speak. And even on those lines too, if we think about it in the times of COVID, like is what your is now the right time to be reaching out about what you're trying to get answers on? Are you yeah. paying attention to the context and the things people are dealing with? Also, just because things are moving virtual, maybe virtual is not the right type of outreach for what you're trying to do. And so you may need to pause or wait until you can do some in-person opportunities. 
or, you know, thinking about the population you're trying to reach. Maybe some can be reached virtually, but some, I mean, like I'm thinking my grandma, my grandma needs some hardcore mail. I just got an idea and I want somebody to take this and run with it. What if we had like a ice cream truck or food truck that was purely about community engagement strategies? So it was like, I think ice cream because that makes me happy. But what if it was we like a truck? Snacks. It's in the snacks. totally snacks and ice cream. But if you're in the community, right? And like, be innovative, be creative. There are so many ways that you can reach people that we're we're just not doing a great job at it. Well, as always, I would drive the truck with you. So <laughs> let me know when you find some I investors. Will, and we'll I will totally happen. do the snack ice cream truck slash checkbox outreach. All right, Aaliyah. Well, thank you so much. I've missed you because we haven't actually had a conversation in a week and I feel like I was going through Aaliyah withdrawals. So this was great. That will never happen again. I'm so (laughs) glad to see your face and I'll just, I'll be over here waving at you from afar. Thank you for listening to another episode of Checkbox Outreach. And hey, keep an eye out for our outreach food truck or ice cream truck. Our episodes can be found on iTunes, Spotify, as well as our website. We're also available on Twitter at Disrupt Outreach.